Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-E-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 95, with the title, Navigating Challenging Conversations. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Michael Dodd. Michael describes himself as a recovering journalist and media communication specialist. When I asked Michael to describe his superpower, he said, being able to ask tough questions in real interviews and enabling people to give great answers. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. G'day, Joe. Great to be here on Inclusion Bites. Great to have you. We've been uh, planning this for some months. So I'm really pleased we finally got, to, got it to happen. So, Michael, you're a covering journalist and you're used to helping people answer tough interview questions so how do how does one go about navigating the challenge of having challenging conversations with a bit of forethought ideally rather than just uh, plunging in and saying what uh, pops into your head so uh, one of the arts of interviewing people which is what i had to do when i was trained by the australian broadcasting corporation to put people under pressure particularly politicians but uh, business people and others as well in uh, media interviews is to actually ask questions which they don't really want to answer quite often. And uh, these days I'm much more popular because I actually help people ahead of media interviews or ahead of tough conversations they might have to have with clients, with prospects, with even their own people, let alone tax inspectors. And the idea there is uh, to get them to be thinking about things in advance. So they're thinking about the messages they want to get across to the audience, which may be to one asker, or it may be to uh, a massive audience beyond that, in the case of media. And it's all about thinking ahead. What are the tough questions they're likely to ask? What we call in the, the world of Australian journalism, low torch on the belly questions. And if you think about those in advance, it's often a lot easier to get across what's in the mutual interest of you and the asker and any wider audience to keep everyone happy. So typically in, in this kind of the world of work, the challenge of conversations probably around performance, redundancy, reprimanding somebody for something. And a lot of people, when they become a manager, don't think about this 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 people side, this, they think it's all sweetness and light and being in charge and everyone do as they're told. But the challenging conversations is a learned skill, and I'm sure you'd agree with that. Absolutely. And if you're dealing with people on your own team, taking them with you is not automatic, and uh, you've got to make sure you do that. So one of the arts of giving great answers is to get your head in the mind of those who you're dealing with, whether they're asking you questions or uh, waiting for their reprimand or whatever it is. And if you can get into that, the mind of the person who is your target audience, 
then it's so much easier to tell them not what they want to hear, what they need to hear, and what's in your and their mutual interest to them to hear by thinking it through beforehand. So a lot of my work is to do with media, helping people go on BBC programs and CNN programs and to be thinking ahead rather than just be thinking, I hope they ask me the right questions because journalists typically uh, think it's their mission to ask you the wrong questions and you need to be ready for it. But what I've found, the more I've worked, particularly with chief executive organizations, uh, that's organizations where you get a bunch of chief executives working together to try and uh, help improve their own performance. What I found is for them, it's not so much media, which is their number one concern when it comes to giving great answers to tough questions. They typically think, well, what am I going to tell this uh, person who I'm hoping will become a customer? Or what am I going to tell the official uh, inspectors? Or if things go wrong, what am I going to tell the official inquiry or the courts? And the same principles apply where it's really important to actually get across a message for any particular occasion and to get across what you're planning to say, not what you're just thinking about on the run. I mean, people who watch uh, great media interviewees often say, oh, they're really good at thinking fast on their feet. And the truth is, often they're not. But what they are good is at thinking ahead before they do the interview, what they're going to say. And actually, when the right question comes up, saying that rather than saying uh, uh, what I hope I can say and getting themselves in a mess. So planning, preparation and practice is really important before all important business conversations. I've noticed when I've I've watched politicians on of various parties over the years, there's a and other other great people who would get interviewed a lot, is that when they get asked a question, there's almost like a holding sentence you put out first. It's almost like you go, "Great question. I'm glad you raised that." So it's it's that immediate soundbite that gives your brain an extra five seconds to process something before you say the next thing, isn't it? And I think that that helps you as well, not rush into the answer. Well, it can if you are taken by surprise, but ideally I would be training people not to do that, just to basically have their great thing they're trying to get across and to say it up front without any sleazy, slimy politician blabber that they've got to go through before they get to it. I mean, there's a great saying in the world of media training, which uh, hopefully won't shock too many of your audience members, Joe, it's that uh, giving a great interviewee performance is the opposite of sex. The reason being is that when you get it right, the climax comes at the start. Now, uh, if any uh, young men listening uh, don't try this at home in the wrong field, but when it comes to an interview, when you're watching on TV, you want the sleazy, slimy politician to come to the point straight away. You don't want him saying what a wonderful, marvellous question it is and how wonderful you as the uh, the interviewer are looking today, etc. You want them to get straight to the point, climax at the front. And that can uh, work in many non-media occasions. They're not all of all occasions, but certainly uh, a lot of uh, conversational occasions. That's really important for getting straight to the point. Okay, I like that. I like, I like the idea of uh, just being that prepared and i've not i've 
I confess I've not done media training, but I've had people give me advice when I've gone on the radio and done other things. And the best advice I was always given was write down next to you on a piece of paper the key points you want to get across. And whatever they ask you, you answer the questions you want to answer rather than their question, or you, you fit in your answer that you want to get across, not as a direct response to their question, but as, as a trying to give my message across rather than their message. Is that something you would talk about? And certainly something I talk about and get asked about. And the trick is you're trying to do both answer the question and get across a message that's on your agenda for that particular audience. And there is a way of doing that, ideally every time. Because, you know, if you watch uh, BBC's Newsnight or uh, some other tough question-asking program, an audience member is pretty quick to judge, yes, that person is honest and reasonable and addressing the question that the audience wants to know, asked on behalf of a, uh, a competent interviewer. And they don't want a lot of blabber and they also don't want a uh, politician setting their own agenda. They want them answering the questions that the question asker is asking on their behalf. And so ideally, when you're trying to get it right as an answerer, you should be dealing with the question because people are asking the question for a reason. But when you're really clever, you can get across the important bits that you've written down, Joe, or whoever else is is talking, you can cover those as well where they're relevant. And so in any particular answer, a really good answer does answer the question, but goes on to get across a message, usually a positive message, on the topic that they're being asked about. So there's a a win-win to be had between the person answering the questions and the question asker, and the wider audience who's listening in. Yeah, you mentioned Newsnight there, the uh, the Fiona Bruce question that she asks these days. And you can you can just tell that the, the career politicians launch straight into the party manifesto, don't they? There's kind of this, here's the facts and figures, this is what I want to tell you. And you end up with just party politics spouting kind of the, the corporate message and you never really hear the real truth and that, that's what I that's what I find well a good interview is on BBC Newsnight and other programs good at persisting and making sure the uh, uh, the politician doesn't just get to say what they want to say it's not a party political broadcast as far as they're concerned yeah. there was a guy who was a probably quite a reasonable interviewee called Simon Hughes he was a Liberal Democrat and he once famously said on the, the Today program on uh, Radio 4, which is a, a serious political interviewing program, um, he said, I can't answer the question you're asking, but I've got the answer to two other questions that you haven't asked, and this is what they are. And uh, it's quite a, a glib statement, uh, quite an arresting statement, but that's not really what the interviewer and the wider audience want. They want to ask, they want answers to the questions that they are asking about, not ones which uh, a sleazy, slimy politician or, or uh, even a, uh, a reasonable, responsible, uh, honest politician wants to, wants to do. But the real trick and a great answer is effectively to do both. So you are answering what's asked, but you're also giving across sometimes that extra little bit, which can be your message as well, on the topic, 
which can actually be very helpful for the viewers. I mean, what a good interviewee is often saying sometimes is they'll give the answer, but then they'll say, but what's even more important is this. And providing it's in the territory that's being asked about by the interviewer, then that's perfectly reasonable and often very helpful. And they can often put things in a new perspective, maybe partly for their own interest, but also for the interest of, uh, of the, uh, the viewers. And what a really good question answerer is doing is doing that a lot. Yeah, I, I, I certainly watch some really, really good interviews. And I know people like Laura Kunzberg and Fiona Bruce on, on, on those sort of programs, Andrew Neil on this week, and those sort of, they, they really are good at asking questions and different styles and different directness but as you say the tenacity if you if you're if you're a career politician or you're you you've got a high high position high rank in some organization when you go onto those programs you really know that you're going there to be in the lion's den you know you're going to get the tough questions you're not going there for a chat and a coffee are you so you are prepared and and i think something just comes across as this combative type attack and defense rather than it being a, a true meeting of minds is it, it, it it's it's almost too staged as, as an audience that's how i sometimes feel well as an interviewee you don't want to be coming across as if you're being staged there's a nice little uh, expression which um i actually got from the bbc which is all about saying something but making it relevant at the time and making sure that it doesn't sound like it's pre-planned. So the term they use is, it's called planned spontaneity, which uh, your astute uh, listeners will know is an oxymoron. You know, it's a contradiction in terms. But the idea is to be saying what's, uh, what you plan to say when this topic came up, what you plan to say before the interview, and you're saying it, but you're saying it in such a way that it just sounds like, oh, right, yeah, I've just thought of this. And uh, so planned spontaneity is a good thing, particularly for people who are inclined to sound like they're a bit too robotic. And, uh, you know, a lot of the interview is about having emotional punch as well as giving the facts. And if you get good at planned spontaneity, then uh, you can be a much more scintillating interviewee. Hopefully I'm doing this with you, Joe. <laughs> Give me a <laughs> of course score. you are, Michael. Of course you are. <laughs> Very spontaneous. Spontaneous. I mean, I, I, where where are we now? We're sort of we're closing out twenty twenty three, and I'm sure most people who are listening in the UK will have heard Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, et, et al. If you like talking about COVID and the COVID years and the inquiries, and there's some, there's been some shocking. I'm going to call them untruths or misinformation coming out how does anyone manage to lose all of their whatsapp messages every time they change their phone you think that this was really really kind of phone 101 isn't it this is kind of like the very basics don't lose my messages don't lose this but all of a sudden conveniently they've gone and and do they really believe the public believes them well if you ever uh, find yourself uh, giving answers where you don't think the public will believe you, uh, you're probably going to be right on that. You're probably uh, not going to be believed. And, uh, you know, part of what you want to be doing as a person answering questions is to be believed, not just because you're telling the truth, but 
you're saying it in a way which is credible. It's enhancing your credibility. So it's a matter of getting the truth right, uh, getting the structure of how you actually say it, which is why the climax of the front thing is important because uh, getting to the nub of the matter right up front is really important. But it's also a matter of how you look and how you sound as you're giving your answers. And that's where media response training comes in, where you're practicing with people, giving them the tough questions in advance that they might get, but playing it back to them so that they can see themselves and hear themselves as other people hear and see them. And that's a great way to teach because it's a great way to learn. If you can actually see uh, on the camera that you're, you're looking nervous because your hands are shaking or you're wiping the sweat off, off your brow as you're talking or you're trying to project being in control, but your, your hands are kind of telling a different story, it's really important to have your body under control and have your voice under control so that you're not just are telling the truth, you are sounding like someone who is telling the truth. And uh, allied to that, apart from your actual performance, is often, you know, I mentioned earlier about getting across a message. When you've got a message to get across, it's typically an abstract thing. But what you want to be doing as a great communicator is putting a picture in people's minds, a real picture, so that they can actually see what you mean. So if, if, you've got, if you're uh, talking to your uh, media audience or maybe your own audience inside your own company and you're an important person in the company, what you want to be doing is getting across, you know, say you might be saying, well, we're making some changes to make the company better. And your people might think, well, heard other people say that. It may or may not be true. But if they can then give a real life example of one of the things that they are doing that paints a picture in people's minds so they can see it, then bang, you know, it's believable. So you know, I'm making this up on the spot here. This is not the planned spontaneity. But I mean, if they're saying, if the company boss is saying, well, we know that workers work better when they're, when they're uh, well fed on really nutritious, healthy food, which tastes great as well. And uh, we're going to be putting this into practice. And in fact, we've already started because you've noticed that uh, our company canteen has cut its prices to make the food available for whoever wants it. And also they've uh, upped the uh, nutritional content of what they're doing. And we've got top chefs in there making it particularly tasty. And the audience saying, oh, yeah, that's right. Lunch yesterday was fantastic. So what the communicator is doing is ideally not just saying a message, but backing it up with a real-life example, which what's in communication terms is hitting a resonant chord. So it's basically activating the brains of the 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 listeners who are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, lunch has been really good this past week with this uh, new chef who's come in. And so, bang, what the person is saying is really connecting effectively with the audience. Yeah, yeah, I get, I get that. So you're, you're signposting these messages that you're trying to follow through on and, and selling a vision, selling a dream as well. And well, yes, but ideally it. it's not just a dream or a vision, but you're backing it up with real facts. So yeah, that's where yeah. the painting of real pictures comes in, which may be real-life examples of something which has happened, or it might be a real-life example of something which is being implemented now. And so, you know, if we're talking about, you know, a fantastic uh, new recreation room, maybe the builders are sort of coming in this morning 
and you can see them all up there on the, on floor 13 or whatever who have brought in the new table tennis tables and the new dartboards and uh, the new exciting electronic games. And you've probably seen them this morning all being delivered just in time for, for you lot to play them. Uh, so you basically always want to make sure that your messages backed up with real-life examples which are happening, or if you're talking about the vision thing, as President George Bush the first in America used to say, the vision thing which he had trouble with, it's actually putting that real picture so that people can actually see the same vision that you're talking about in a way that's real and believable, and that makes for good communication. Yeah. One of the things I struggle with is having the conversation to tell someone I want to have a conversation. Because if, if, you, if you're trying to tell bad news or, 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 or challenging news, you want to set the scene. Can we have a quiet moment later or quiet moment in a minute? And, of course, the first, first reaction to that is, so what's wrong? What do I need to know? And you try not to signpost too much of the conversation and make it sound too bad or too good. Or So how, how can people sort of signpost the need to have a chat and feel comfortable about setting that scene without giving too much away and losing the impetus of the conversation? Uh, there's a, uh, a great uh, professional speaker called Anthony Steers, uh, who uh, you may have come across, uh, Joe, yourself. Uh, we're in an organisation uh, where you, I, and him are all in it. And Anthony has this great concept of permission to speak. And it's uh, basically like, say, if you're making a phone call and you're going to have that conversation, it's no good just bursting into it. The climax of the front thing I mentioned earlier has to wait a bit because you want to make sure that it's a good time for the person, you've got their attention before you're raising what can be a highly emotional topic. So actually to be saying at the start of that, you know, is now a good time to talk about your uh, glorious future career in this company and getting their buy-in on that means that when you've got some points to make, a couple of which may be constructively critical, you've actually got them there and they've committed to giving you the time to go ahead and discuss it. So you're not putting yourself in a position as the instigator of this uh, tough conversation where you're not making it uh, too easy for them to say, sorry, I've got time now, I've got to go home, I've got to pick up my kids or whatever it is. You're getting buy-in right at the start before you're raising the big issues. And setting the scene correctly is really helpful for when you're getting to the substance of the issue. So kind of a we need to have a chat, when would be a good time for you is, is a good lead. Absolutely, that. yeah, that's so much better than, you know, you've got to be in my office right now when they might be working on something that's uh, massively important for the company or massively important for themselves and they won't be able to focus on it. So, yeah, getting that permission to speak at the right time is a great concept. And uh, so I would recommend it ahead of, you know, tough conversations which could feature blowtorch on the belly questions and even... Uh, you know, brilliant uh, answers. If the scene is set right, it's so much easier for a win-win to be established between the two principal people taking part in the conversation. Yeah. I, I've, 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 I've been naughty in my life, as most of us have, and I've been on the uh, receiving end of, of challenging conversations. And I've, I've experienced mastery, for want of a better way of describing it, of people who are able to effectively lead you down this 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 tunnel 
and there's nowhere to escape from it. You basically, they're, they're very good at asking the questions. So they've obviously got an agenda. They know where they're trying to get the conversation. And all you can do is, is, is tell the truth or lie, I guess. And those are the two options. And if you want to tell the truth, they just keep honing in. And, I, and I've noticed this as well. This, they start by describing a big picture and then ask you to sort of re-explain a smaller part of that picture and then a smaller part of that picture and a smaller part of that picture. And eventually you get to the end and you're focusing on one tiny detail, but you started massive. And I found it's a really great way of, of getting me to hone down on the answer they wanted. Well, that's uh, something that I learned to do as a uh, blowtorch on the belly interviewer on behalf of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Often, I mean, supposing you mentioned someone called Boris Johnson, a uh, British prime minister who uh, is lovable to some, but uh, critics have said quite rightly that uh, sometimes he has uh, an interesting interaction with the truth. And so when you're interviewing someone in that league, it may help to be start when you're actually into this conversation by asking that general question like, uh, you know, is it important for prime ministers to always tell the truth when they're dealing with important matters concerning health, right? So typically mm, what might happen next is they'll say, oh, yes, that's important. And then in that sort of focusing down thing you mentioned there, Joe, you're then saying, well, why was it, you know, when you made this particular announcement about uh, the COVID crisis of uh, the early 2020s, did you say this when the truth was that? And so because they're already locked into a general agreement that, yes, uh, a prime minister should tell the truth when they're dealing with matters of public health, they're kind of uh, bound to give you an honest answer rather than tell a lie at that point when you're focusing it down. And if you play your game right as a question asker, you can do it in such a way that yeah, you're seeking the truth as a questioner and it will become clear to the audience if someone is not suddenly giving honest answers, that will be obvious. And as an interviewer, you're often it's a win for you if, if you can be asking questions in a way where at least the audience can see that the person is not telling the truth. That is kind of like a win that you've achieved on behalf of your audience. I mean, so much better if they do tell the truth and they seem to be telling the truth. But if they're not telling the truth, a good question asker, like a guy who used to work for the BBC called Jeremy Paxman, who was on that Newsnight program, and uh, he was particularly good at that. Laura Koonsberg, who you've also identified, she can do that very effectively as well. And so there is a skill in asking the questions in, a, in the right sort of order to put the person under pressure to answer. But one of the uh, important things from an answerer's point of view is to make sure you're telling the truth at all times. I always say, don't say anything other than an exact truth. Because if you're being led down a path of questions, which you've mentioned, and uh, you suddenly find that the person wants to change from their policy of telling the truth to not telling the truth, it will probably be bleeding obvious to everyone, which is, uh, from the answerer's point of view, not a good thing. So definitely only tell exact truths. And also, yeah, someone once told me it's always easy to remember the truth because it's the truth. You know, everything else is, becomes a story and then you have to refabricate and readjust the story. And no matter how good you are, you can never remember the entire story and all the different nuances and all the different interactions. 
And yeah, I know that's one of the reasons why I'm always pushing people to tell real life examples, not theoretical examples, real ones, because when you're telling a story that really happened to you about maybe an interaction with a customer and where your company got it right and did some fantastic things and the customer thought you were fantastic, by telling it as it really is, it's easy to remember because you've got that picture in your mind which you're projecting to the minds of your audience. And if you're sticking to the truth, then that's a great thing. And yeah, giving real life examples is a way of uh, helping to do that, which is a good thing for the universe. Yeah, I, I do a lot of panels, discussions, a lot of, of Q&A stuff. And my approach to that would be if someone asked me something like, which, which company do you know that is doing this the best? And I say, well, I don't have specific examples of a company doing that myself, but I am aware that these organizations are highly regarded in, th in that in that sort of sphere, but I don't have personal real-life experience. So all I'm doing is, is giving you hearsay or my opinion. So I, I would tend to frame it in that way rather than tell it as my truth, if you like. Well, yeah, sometimes you might, on behalf of your company, let's say your company's company X, <clears throat> you might have a fantastic happy customer which for various reasons doesn't necessarily want to put its hand up and be used as an example and so sometimes you move for what's called the specific to the general when you're telling the story so you can say let me tell you about a real company where we did something fantastic for them i won't give their name because uh, we don't have a an agreement to do that with them but what happened was this and you tell the real story as it really was but you're not invading the privacy of the company and so you can be telling truth sometimes on different levels sometimes you can be telling the truth at a more general level to protect confidentiality but sometimes it's necessary when often when you have got permission to actually tell some absolute nitty-gritty details which give credibility to the story and meaning that the uh, the listeners can only be concluding, oh, yes, this has to be true because it's such so detailed and specific. So there is a plus as a communicator to be telling real-life stories with some really good nitty-gritty details that add to the credibility of you, the person trying to get across your message. Yeah, no, I like that. It's, it's a really good technique. One thing I also wonder sometimes is when you're being coached, to give great answers or, or competent answers. I sometimes wonder the the echo chamber, if you like, in which the people are, are coaching them in. Is everybody caught up in their own self-truth and their own their own kind of minority view? Or they, they all try to talk themselves into, yeah, this sounds believable. But when you actually take it out to the light of day, remember the public was thinking, how could anyone ever believe that? So did the circle of advisors sometimes create this problem and this myth of belief, if you like? I think there's potential for that. I mean, if you take someone who, by sort of universal uh, agreement, went on television, I think it was that program Newsnight you mentioned earlier, BBC program, uh, it was a guy called Prince Andrew, known around the world, and he was asked some uh, very tricky, very clever, very specific questions. And I think, and this is Dob theory, this I don't know this for a fact, but that he had some kind of coaching but it wasn't very good. And I suspect it got locked into that circle. So at one moment, I won't give your uh, listeners all the details, but it's still there. I've checked. It's still there uh, on the internet. If you want to Google it, put in Prince Andrew, Emily Maitlis, BBC Newsnight interview, and it's all there. 
but there's one time where he's trying to show that a witness who's been giving evidence against him uh, in the court of public opinion wasn't telling the truth. And uh, she was saying that when she was dancing with him before various activities, which uh, uh, as a prince he shouldn't have been uh, engaging in with her, uh, happened, she was saying he was sweaty. And he was saying, because of his heroic actions in the Falklands, that he couldn't sweat. And there are pictures all over the media of showing Prince Andrew looking very sweaty indeed in certain circumstances. And it just didn't quite ring true. So, uh, you know, the truth needs to guide you. And if, getting back to your circle of advisors, if they you know, did that in practice with him, and I said, oh, Andrew, that sounds great. It didn't pass the court of public opinion. So what I typically do when I'm working with a company is, say I'm working with the sales team who are obviously trying to make the company's products look great and sound great, but also credible. I will typically get, by by agreement, the chief executive to pop in and say, uh, you know, we've been working on it all day. Get the chief executive to come in at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and have a look at the answers they've been giving. And that's a really good kind of reality check, which sometimes doesn't happen. So he might be saying, listen, George, you know, uh, what you're saying there sounds great, but you've got to remember that that particular product, you know, has got this particular flaw that you need to be honest about. And you're getting that kind of reality check to stop that group thing happening. So yeah, when you do hear someone giving answers that uh, you, you, you think a reasonable person would just say, that can't possibly be true, that circle of sort of incestuous advisors who have got into a group think stage could be happening. So my aim is to typically work with a videographer who plays stuff back and the person themselves can see it. And they're often pretty good at saying, yeah, I need to improve that answer. I need to change what I'm saying on that to make it more credible and to show it to outside people you know, within the circle, but not there for the advice to give an objective reaction. And that can make them all uh, the sharper and all the better when they have to do it for real. Yeah, I, I get very frustrated at uh, people who fail to recall conversations or detail or things that have happened or you know, I don't recall or I'm not, I'm not sure about that, I don't remember. And I, and I wonder whether I really trust a prime minister or a cabinet member who can't remember what they did a year ago in terms of a big decision. You think, well, hang on a minute. You can remember this, this and this, but you can't remember that. It's like Prince Andrew. He can remember exactly where he had that pizza which town it was, who he was with, the the, the shoes the waiter was wearing and, and how much the bill was, but he couldn't remember certain other details. And so it's almost like this specific learnt story and everything else is kind of just vague, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and as a media trainer, you've just got to be aware of that. And I generally find and most people, and it's partly influenced by the fact that, yeah, they might be going on TV where everybody can see what they're saying including people in their own team who know where the bodies are buried and that normally concentrates the mind and generally when i'm training people i find them you know overwhelmingly very honest which is very good which is what you're trying to get to uh, honest and credible <coughs> excuse me so what you want to be doing in the training is to be subjecting them to uh, when they've got their the thrust of what they're going to say worked out to be throwing in as the trainer surprise questions which they weren't exactly expecting and typically 
if they they're talking straight um they um they find that you you'll find they will be telling the truth they may have to make uh, some adjustments on some occasions which is uh, important before they go out there and do it for real generally i find uh, people are sort of concentrated by the occasion and uh the actual process of recording playing it back critiquing it actually helps the truth process and helps them to be very comfortable and confident when they're doing it for real. But I will tell you one story where it happens to be from the real estate industry, where I was training a group of people in a real estate company, all but one who was, was seemed to be scrupulously honest. And they realized that they knew there was going to be some interviews about something dodgy that the company had done, which the company agreed was wrong. And they were being trained to say how it was wrong, why it was wrong, and why they'd be committing never to do it again. And we had one person on the training, and I think he was a person who just couldn't tell the truth. And there are people like that out there. And the sort of climactic moment of the day was our press conference at the end where they had to, if the if this story got really big, which there was a danger of, that a number of them had to appear together and face the press which means getting questions not just from one journalist, but a whole bunch of journalists. And so we actually planned a bunch of journalists asking uh, questions and everyone stuck to the script, which was, you know, the truth, which was, yes, they'd made this mistake and they'd done it wrong, but this one guy just couldn't bring himself to do it. And there he was at the press conference and he was denying that the whole thing had ever happened, which made everyone else look like liars and uh, didn't work. So, the day ended, normally a media training day ends on a real high where people are thinking, yes, we know what to say. We know how to tell the truth in a way that stands up to scrutiny. But this one was very different because they just all ended up hating on him. And, and it was quite clear that the, the uh, higher-ups in the company were not going to let this guy loose before the media because he just couldn't do it. That's extremely rare. But as a trainer, it's your job is to uh, make a company aware of that if they've got someone on the team who's like that and make sure they're never put anywhere near the media or in any other occasion where truth matters, which is a lot of occasions. In government or somewhere like that, maybe. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that person in real estate, as far as I know, he's not in, he's not in government, not in politics, but, yeah, if the occasional person does get into politics is like that, it's up to uh, their peers to uh, scrutinise them and make sure they're not uh, put in a position where they can be let loose to say uh, whatever truth they manufacture themselves at the time. Beware. Yeah. We see, we see this recently. I mean, there's a couple of other car crash interviews that I can recall in the recent times. One is the uh, Captain Sir Tom Moore Foundation, the uh, the building of the uh, Aquaspa, a.k.a. a swimming pool, <laughs> and the misappropriation of lots of money and, and, and siphoning off expenses for whatever better word and then we had the uh, baroness moan ppe interview which again was a, another car crash and it, 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 for me both of those had an element of privilege and arrogance and inhibition around them where they they, they believe their own pr and they believed that people would believe them and clearly clearly the, the the public opinion was uh, completely opposite. And I think you mentioned earlier about telling this story and painting these pictures of the truth and they're filling that in. And these people didn't do that, did they? 
Yeah, clearly not. Uh, and uh, in the case of uh, Baroness Moan, I mean, during the course of the interview, I mean, there were remarkable moments of honesty, which I believe, which was that she was saying that she had repeatedly told lies to the to the media, um, and which, you know, give her some marks for honesty <laughs> about being dishonest. But, you know, in terms of the whole context of how the public viewed that, they absolutely turned on her. I know this for a fact because I put up a couple of uh, posts on social media at the time, and my aim is always to just, in those sorts of posts, is I'm a professional communicator. I want to focus in this post on on the communications issues, not anything beyond that. And in her case, I couldn't control it as the poster. And while I was saying, you know, I want to sort of discuss, you know, how well she did in the interview and what lessons can be drawn from it. There was an amazing amount of vitriol from, you know, ordinary members of the public who were, you know, wanting all sorts of uh, terrible things to happen to her as a result. Now, it probably was a result of her communication strategy, but fundamentally, you know, they were uh, wanting her to be uh, taken out of the House of Lords, for example, which a right-thinking person might well think. But for me, trying to marshal the conversation on just the communications issues was a bit of a fail. And, uh, you know, the test she didn't pass was the social media test in terms of people believing her. And I suppose having set it up saying, well, yes, I told all these lies to the media. And then she made a point which wasn't really very endearing about, you know, it's not a, it's not a uh, crime to lie to the media. You know, the court of a public opinion may agree with that. That's not a crime on the books. But, yeah, you can't be sent to jail for, for that specifically. But what does it do to your own credibility? In her case, not very much. And uh, a price has to be paid for that. Yeah, as a, as a baroness, as a, as a peer of the realm, responsible in the House of Lords for law-setting, governance, <laughs> arbitration of right and wrong, Lying to the media is actually lying to the people. Yes, absolutely. Not the media. And that's a really important point to make. And that's one of the virtues of media training, where ideally uh, you can play it back on a big screen and like a very modern big television set. And people can sort of see that, well, you know, if I said that and I didn't get it quite right, it's there on the big screen for everyone to see. And everyone I know will be telling me that, that what I said wasn't accurate and the shame of that. And it's a great process in a way because it actually encourages this fundamental principle of only saying exact truths. If if Baroness Moan had been through that process properly, and maybe I don't know what she had in the way of advisors, they clearly weren't collectively very good. Um, yeah, uh, she may well have uh, taken a different approach. And as you say, sometimes there is a kind of arrogance in people who have put a false picture in their head and they think, well, if I believe it, I can make everyone believe it. And it tends to come unstuck. So a good media training process uh, picks that up and helps them before too late it is. <laughs> I have uh, I did a TV documentary several years ago uh, on Channel 4 uh, and we, we spent a lot of time being interviewed and always in the back of my head was, I call it kind of like, the mum test, would my mum be proud of me? Would I be proud if my mum was watching this? So that was kind of my, my moral compass around telling the truth, not oversharing, sharing the right amount, but knowing my mum was going to watch it was always my kind of benchmark of, uh, of, of understanding of the world, if you like. 
it's probably a very healthy approach. So uh, yeah, I might uh, be um, guilty of using the same principle with people that, you know, think about someone who is in the company who knows really well, you know, because they've been in the company for as long as you have, and they know all about the good things the company's done and a few of the bad things as well. And mm, I suppose if I go back to the, to the real estate person who wasn't telling the truth, if if you could get them to be thinking, well, what would person X in the company be thinking when he sees you on that TV screen saying something that he knows is not true and you know is not true, wouldn't it be best not to say that? That may prove to be persuasive. So think about this hypothetical company. So something has gone badly wrong, a PR disaster. I mean, we can call it a kind of a uh, a Me Too moment, some sexual misappropriation, the CBI. Let's t- let's, sorry, let's, let's dive into the CBI there. It's something so they're, theoretical, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not theoretical. Their, their, their entire reputation was and credibility was undermined in an instant. So did they do well? Did they do badly? I mean, what's your interpretation of what the correct steps should have been to limit risk, manage the communications and, and deal with that aftermath? Because it seems to me they got it wrong as well. Uh, the fact that you're uh, mentioning it uh, quite some time afterwards probably uh, underlines the point that they didn't do everything right. And uh, I think uh, people now at the top of the CBI would probably be tending to agree with you that uh, they didn't get it all right. So often you go beyond in training you know, a, about a particular situation and you're dealing with the sort of the, the fundamental principles of a company and uh, people who talk about values, values of people and values of companies, quite when they do it well, um, they're typically doing it well for the company because, uh, you know, if the fundamental values are there and they're ingrained in the DNA of the, uh, the organisation, then the kind of situation that you mentioned there is much harder to happen. And... Uh, I mean, when it does happen, absolute honesty is important, as is when when something happens and people, the, the question askers, are aggrieved because they've been hurt in some way, maybe physically, maybe reputationally. One of the important principles in that kind of situation is to make sure that people talk to the heart before they talk to the head. So often mixed in that is like a, a real apology that's effective is very early on introduced into the conversation and the uh, the sorrow that the person speaking on behalf of the company is feeling because of the way they got something wrong in the company and realising that people have been adversely affecting affected by that and acknowledging that the company needs to do things to make up for that, whether it's paying compensation or or whatever it's doing, is really important. So when I'm uh, teaching people to answer tough questions, I've typically got two formulas, or formulae, as we say in Latin. And uh, uh, the first formula you can use in most cases, which are cases that are not especially emotional. And then there's a second formula for when they're really emotional. And in the second formula, which sometimes needs to be incorporated with the first, needs to acknowledge that you're talking to real human beings, some of whom have been hurt, or they're professionally angry, if they're lawyers, perhaps on behalf of people who've been hurt. And it's really important to get people to talk about, to other people, talk from the heart first, before they get into all the technical complications of the situation. 
So heart before the head when something's gone wrong is a really important communications principle because you're talking to real people and they will react like real people do. And uh, you've got to be aware of that. So pathos before logos, to put a bit of Greek. Yes, I was going to say I was uh, yeah. I was talking Latin there, but not for, for one word. But uh, yeah, well, yeah, Latin or Greek. The Greeks, Latin, probably, had, yeah. the Greeks probably had that right. So uh, yeah, perhaps we should bow to a Greek scholar such as yourself. So you want to define no, that no, for the I'm, audience? I'm, 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 the pathos is that's to do with empathy and sympathy. Is that right? Uh, it's well, em- empathy and sympathy are, are, are different sides. Yeah, mm, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's and it's the, recognizing the, it's, the logic element. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're, you're saying talk to the heart, not to the head. Yeah, yeah. So you do need to get around to talking. But typically, if someone is worked up about and they're questioning you about something which has affected them, maybe they've been injured in a company explosion which should have been prevented on the production line or something, and they're really angry that they haven't been properly compensated and they're in a discussion with the managing director, probably the new managing director, then the new managing director needs to talk to their heart first before the head because once they've actually got across the emotional points they're trying to make, then the human brain on behalf of the aggrieved person can then cope with the logos, as you say, the logic of the situation, and listen to it in a more calm, peaceful state of mind, having had their emotions touched first. It can be difficult, though, when you've got litigation and lawyers and people like that. I mean, radical candor, absolute honesty is admitting liability. It's it's saying sorry is, is admitting liability. And many organisations, probably their, their chief executive is probably not empowered by the shareholders or by, by the board to make a statement like, I'm sorry, without... And then the cover-up is... It, it just reeks of a cover-up. And I think what what we find sometimes is that the... The immediate apology to the heart takes the heat out of it rather than a, a holding position, which sometimes you end up creating a lie or creating a story. And people are more upset and more angry about being lied to than they probably were about the original act. You can mm-hmm. diffuse a lot by, by, by being open straight away. Absolutely. Uh, it's so long ago I haven't got the details at the top of my head, but I can remember enough about a company called Thomas Cook which was a very successful travel company uh, for a long time. And they had something went wrong on one of their holidays and there was a a child who was, uh, let's say, adversely affected by something that they did. And they didn't talk to the heart before the head. They didn't sort it out. And they had to wait until the old boss got kicked out and a new boss was brought in who was prepared to tell the truth and talk to people emotionally as well as uh, logically and acknowledge what the company had gone wrong. And and then so a lot of bad stuff happened to the company between the two bosses because the first one, just as you say, you know, wasn't getting the company to admit to the truth and to the sort of emotional impact of what their uh, their bad holiday had done, and uh, they paid the price. So um, having uh, chief executives who are, empowered by their shareholders or who make sure they're empowered by their shareholders when they've got something to say that's important for the public to hear, yeah, beyond just the company share price, yeah, that's that's really important. And so um, getting it right in terms of human interaction as well as in terms of the, the rights and wrongs of the situation is very important right at the outset. And uh, you can build good communication on that foundation if you get it right. And it, it's it's so much easier for the the new person to come in 
and just dump all of the problems on the, on the person who just left, isn't it? I mean, you think about football management. The, the football manager leaves, new person comes along, all of the all the reasons everything was bad was that other person. So you can just demonise, throw throw them under a bus, and bury all your all the communications issues, all the problems you ever had, and saying. I'm, I'm the new person. It's different under me. They were the bad person. And it's, I, I guess that's why we see companies hanging people out to dry sometimes because it's easier to, to lose that news that way, isn't it? Um, absolutely. And uh, shockingly enough, uh, Joe, it even happens in politics. I mean, there was a British prime minister for uh, a couple of weeks called Liz Truss. And, uh, yeah, she made some very bad decisions in her limited time in office. And uh, exactly what happened to the football manager there happened to her. She was, uh, well, she ultimately saw that it was time for her to go and she went very quickly. And then the new prime minister, a guy called Rishi Sunak, who at the time I was speaking is still the British prime minister. Uh, yeah, he's coming as the new person to try to sort of uh, fix up some of the uh, economic problems caused in those uh, chaotic uh, two weeks of trust prime ministership. So it happens in politics, happens in business. And, uh, you know, making sure things pass the truth test early on for any organisation, political or business-wise or, or other, is really important when you're trying to communicate your way to success. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's canny by design or just by coincidence that the, the trust intervention of, what, 45 days or over long, 50, less than 50 days, created a fire break between Rishi and Boris. So if, if Rishi had taken straight over from Boris... This, you couldn't have escaped that regime because he was part of it. But the trust created all that confusion, which allowed Rishi to come along, bury everything under trust, and almost ignore Boris and, and, and come out the other side as being a new person. I think, whether, I don't know whether that was design or just good luck for Rishi. Yeah, well, if there was a great Machiavellian mind in the British Conservative Party who actually planned that, with hindsight, you might be saying, well, that set them up better than they would have been without those... Uh, chaotic uh, uh, trust days uh, as Prime Minister. But uh, I suspect politics being what it is, it wasn't quite as planned deviously as that and uh, hasn't been quite as successful. uh, There's certainly, when you're trying to replace one regime with another, having a uh, short intervention from someone else in in the meantime can be successful. I mean, you'll notice sometimes in uh, the business world, sometimes you'll get the chair, per, the chair of the company will become the chief executive for a short period of time before handing over to someone else. I think that happened with BP once and they got themselves in a media mess over a massive uh, disaster on uh, to do with leaked oil on the beaches of uh, the uh, uh, coast of America. <clears throat> and the, 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 uh, the chair stepped in and was boss for a little while uh, before handing over to someone else. And that same kind of firebreak effect, which I'm not sure how well that was planned, it probably wasn't, but it did ultimately get the company in a better position and a better position to tell the truth to the public, having got a sort of a, a, uh, a not-so-credible person at the top out of the way, not in one bite, but in two. Hmm. I, I think it's probably true to say that the person who, the ideal candidate to, to, to take the business forward is not necessarily the ideal person to deal with the problem you've got right now. So, so that fire break, putting an interim in to deal with that situation, better at talking to the press, better at being in that environment is not necessarily the person who's going to take over. And I think that, that's probably a, a very good strategy to find the person you really want for the future and then deal with the problem now differently. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, just in individual terms, there's a, a saying which you hear a lot these days, which is very, you hear it a lot because it's true. I think, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And so your skills as an individual, which got you to your standing today, may not be great for you for the next 20 years. So you need to improve and learn and change. And I think we can apply the same thing to companies in a way where what got the company success uh, and the people who mastered that success may not be the people to take it into the future. And sometimes you need that interim little change in order to put you on the right track. Michael, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And uh, I know we could keep talking and talking and no doubt we'll bump into each other at uh, a PSA meeting sometime in the next month or so. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute honour to have this conversation with you and uh, and learn a bit a bit more about uh, challenging conversations in the media or elsewhere. Thank you. That's great. Well, hopefully in your next uh, media conversation, Joe, with the mainstream media, uh, it'll work out all for the good. <laughs> yes, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. You, the listeners uh, out there, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for getting to the end. And I'm, hopefully you've taken a lot to it of inspiration from this. Uh, if you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please share the love. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. because I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up over the next few weeks, months, and hopefully even years. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, I'd love to hear from you or any suggestions or feedback. So joe.lockwood at uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.